respected Matajis, the Swamis, and my dear friends. It has been a great pleasure for me to be with you all for several times now, last several years. And it has almost become a second home to me, thanks to your warm hospitality and the kindness that you shower on me. Today I have been asked to talk to you on a subject which is very dear to my heart. And I do not know how dear it would be to you if I'm given the chance to explain it to you, why it is so dear to me. The subject is Swami Sri Ramakrishna as Swami Vivekananda saw him. Sri Ramakrishna as Swami Vivekananda saw him. That is the subject today. But when on the surface we study Swamiji's works, we analyze several instances which actually happened in Swamiji's life, we really do not find anywhere, anything in which Sri Swami Vivekananda has glorified his master. Though he accepted him as his master after a lot of struggle as it were, conflicts as it were, difference of opinion as it were, but we do not find that concept of Guru Bhakti, devotion to the Guru, took a hold on him, sacrificing the sense of propriety. We don't find. So it is very difficult to quote from his literature as to he said about Sri Ramakrishna this, this, this. You won't find it. So an authentic statement of Sri Ramakrishna as seen by Swami Vivekananda is very difficult to build up academically or scholastically. Then there are certain incidents in his life. Once it so happened that Girish Chandra Ghosh, one of the very famous disciples of Sri Ramakrishna, that Girish Chandra Ghosh, he was a great observant, you know, and a man of sharp intellect and common sense. He saw the reaction between Ramakrishna and Vivekananda a little too deep, little too mystic to understand. It was not so with others. So he understood that there is some relationship between these two which does not existing, exist between Ramakrishna and somebody else. Keeping that in view, he once told Narend, Narend, why don't you write 
a biography of Sri Ramakrishna. He says, Oh, Mr. Ghosh, Ghosh Jana said to me in Bengali words, Oh, Mr. Ghosh, don't ask me to do that. I am not worthy enough a sculptor that a sculptor thinks he's, he can build up an image of Shiva and he ends up building up an image of a monkey. Don't ask me to write down my evaluation of Sri Ramakrishna. Instead of painting him in his own colors, I might create something obnoxious. Don't ask me to do that. It is beyond me. It's a recorded history. He felt himself inadequate enough not to write Sri Ramakrishna's biography. Then we find, after his return from the States, one day with all his Guru Bhais, his brother disciples, they were having an evening chit-chat. That's a common culture in Bengal, in Calcutta especially. In Calcutta, every evening, there's a fresh sea breeze blowing from the south. It washed the whole city clean, as it were. And the residents of Calcutta has a habit, go to the terrace, spread mattresses, and etc. sit there and, have a, and enjoy the evening in chit-chatting and gossiping. That was a culture. So according to that, one evening at Balram Bose's house, few Guru Bhais settled together. There was an existing disapproval of Swamiji's method of teaching in the West. They thought the other Guru Bhais, in a traditional manner, they thought that Swamiji, in every sentence, will express the excellence of his Guru, Sri Ramakrishna. But if you are students of Vivekananda literature, you will nowhere find he speaking, even uttering the name of his Guru anywhere. That was a resentment in the hearts of the disciples, other disciples. And that day, somehow or other, few of them got that courage in them, as it were, to blast him, that you are a very ungrateful disciple. They use the word ungrateful, Vishwaskaraj. Why? What you are today is because of your matchless master, and you did not have that much of sense of gratitude to speak about your master to your children, to your listener audience there. You only spoke about principles, and that too, to build up your own standing there as a great scholar and a great saint. You propagated yourself, not your master. That was the allegation that Swamiji faced that evening. 
he could only say by his own defense, in his own defense, that look, do you think I don't love her, love him? Do you think I don't care for him? Do you think what I am doing is for my own self? If that is so, I have nothing to tell you. And in tears he left that group of meeting. This is an incident in Swamiji's life. But this very Swami knew very well as a student of history, he knew very well that posterity or the future generation will not excuse him if he does not mention clearly and properly what he, thinks of, what he thought of his master. History will not excuse him. He knew that. Being the principal disciple of his master, he used to call himself a disciple, but the master used to call him a part and parcel of his own being. That is a different st story or that's a different subject matter as to why he called him so and what for. He knew himself to be an unworthy disciple. And as far as Guru is concerned, in the latter part of his life, when he was being eulogized, when he was being praised sky high at what Vivekananda has done for the whole human race and especially for India, what has he done? You know what that man said? Swami Vivekananda said, what are you speaking? Think of that person who made a man out of me. That person has the capacity from a handful of street dust of Calcutta, a handful of dust from the streets of Calcutta, he could create a hundred Vivekanandas. It was he who is to be praised, not me. So, dears, this is the background, the hesitancy of Swami Vivekananda to speak about his matchless master because he thought, however eloquent he may be, however expressive he may be, however academically qualified or spiritually able he may be, he will not be able to do justice to describe that matchless personality of his master. This is what Vivekananda in himself is to be considered. On the other hand, as I told you, he knew very well that the world will not pardon him, excuse him, if he does not put it on pen and paper in writing what he thought of that man, his guru, Sri Ramakrishna. So he found out a wonderful method, clever that he was, intelligent that he was, he found out a method which 
is nothing else but an outpouring of his own heart or what he thought of his master. But he did it so correctly and cleverly until and unless we point our fingers to it, draw your attention to it, it will just pass by as one of the hymns written by him. Which, by daily repetition, loses its novelty, its charm, and our capacity for an in-depth study of what he wrote. I will try to draw your attention to that shloka. It is generally known among the family of Sri Ramakrishna's children, it is generally known as Pranama Mantra. After worshipping him, this is a parting mantra that we recite and we try to maintain those ideas within ourselves so that it helps our personality to undergo a sea change. What is that Pranam Mantra here? Let me recite it for you. And most of you have heard it, most of you know even by memory. Swami Vivekananda writes it down. Om Sthapakaya Cha Dharmasya Sarva Dharma Swarupine Avatar Varishthaya Ramakrishnaya Te Namaha. He wrote the evening prayers which we sing, the Stava and one or two songs. These are the areas where we find couched under the garb of being a mantra, a just a poem, just a song. He has poured his heart out to us as to what he thinks, what he thought of his matchless master. So let us go step by step. He starts with Omkara. As you all know, Omkara is a symbol of the divine from the grossest state of manifestation to the unmanifest state of absolute. It covers the whole range of the divine. He starts with that word Omkara that I am now going to describe to you a personality who can be seen, whose effect can be felt right from the grossest level of existence to the subtlest, even the absolute. And how does he say start? Sthapakaya cha dharmasya. I'll break it up for you so that it is readily understandable. Dharmasya sthapaka. Sthapakaya is a case ending in Sanskrit grammar where you say, I offer to thee. Now, I offer to thee this word, dharmasya sthapaka. The meaning of this word. One who has, in common literal translation, it means one 
who has established dharma dharvasya stapaka one who has established dharma now the first contradiction arises dharma according to hindu concept is that which is eternal which is everlasting ever existing symbolically it has been expressed as breathing of the divine breathing of the divine is one with the divine it is everlasting ever existing sthapaka means one who establishes literally that means sri swami vivekananda is saying you are oh dear lord sri ramakrishna i bow down to thee why do i bow down to thee because i feel you are the establisher of religion now the word religion and a trade dears is a a little different translation it conveys different meaning than the word dharma dharma means dharate iti dharma it is something maybe a basket full of ideas holding on to which dharate holding on to which a human being protects himself or herself from degrading into an ordinary biological creature a basket full of ideas a basket full of values holding on to which a human protects himself or herself from degrading into the level of a biological creature which he or she is and this is a negative approach you protect yourself from degradation and what's the positive approach the positive approach is holding on to those ideas those basket full of ideas and values you upgrade your level of personality from egocentric personality to the divine you hold on to that that is dharma for you that is the special meaning of the word dharma in sanskrit to be very light heartedly it's a basket full of ideas not only one idea because infinite cannot be finitized if you have to have a concept of infinite you must develop the faculty and capacity to spread your faculties to infinite dimensions dharma is that holding on to which though you are a biological creature you stop yourself from degrading to that level of a biological creature 
holding on to which you upgrade your egocentric personality into a divine-centric pers personality when you have divinized yourself, become a man of God, one with God. That is the range of dharma, the effect of dharma in human life. And that dharma, according to the same conviction, is eternal because is the breath of God. God is eternal. Dharma is eternal. Sthapaka means one who establishes it. Is it not a contradictory in terms? Contradiction in terms? It is eternal. How can one re-establish it? So let us put a question mark. Was Narendranath carried away by the euphorics of Guru Bhakti, devotion to a guru, he lost his sense of proportion. <laughs> Let us keep a question mark there. Give him a little time to prove himself right. Don't sit on judgment straight away. Have a little patience. So we find the first statement that Swami Vivekananda makes, allow me to address it as Narendrath. Swami Vivekananda seems to be a little far away. Narendranath is very close to us. So, Narendranath has written something. If I translate it literally, it makes no head or tail. And I'm not going to accept him. I keep a question mark. Then he swore, utters two more words in the first line of the sentence. Sarva Dharma Swarupini. There's a second reason why I bow down to him. First is he's an establisher of Dharma, whatever it may be. Second is he is the epitome, he is the essence, he is the I would say gross manifestation of the essence of religion, dharma swarupa, essence of religion, that basket full of ideas. I bow down to him because he is an establisher of dharma and he is the essential form of dharma, abstraction concretized. How can abstract ideas be concretized? Abstract ideas are concretized by human behavior pattern. Idea concretized in human behavior pattern. So this is the second reason Narendranath says that I bow down to thee because of these two reasons. We keep question marks. Let us first understand it literally. Then he says, Avatara Varishta, you are the most, I would say, magnificent, most excellent 
manifestation of the divine. Divine manifestation has taken place since dawn of human civilization beyond recorded history, during recorded history. Of all of them that we have in our presence, I am forced to say I have no other way to express but to say you are the most excellent of those manifestations of the divine, incarnations of the divine. Ramakrishnaya te namaha. I bow down to thee, O Lord, known as Sri Ramakrishna. This is the literal translation of the Pranama Mantra. Let me repeat it now literally correctly. I bow down to thee, O Sri Ramakrishna by name, a human being in the name of Ramakrishna. I bow down to thee. Why? Because of these three outstanding reasons that I am convinced of. What are those three outstanding reasons? You are the establisher of religion. You are basically the essence of all religion. And of all the incarnations that have manifested themselves in the human society, you're supposed to be the most excellent specimen. Therefore, I bow down to you. Now let us highlight the contradictions. Once you know what the problem is, the solution is very easy to understand. Let us highlight the contradictions. The answers will be more appreciated. First contradiction is dharma, according to Hindu concept, is eternal. It is the breathing of the divine. It is the divine. Therefore, nobody can establish it in point of time. How do you call him an establisher? First contradiction. What do you mean by being the essence of all religions? Being the essence of all religions. How do you, what do you mean by that? It's not clear. Essence of all. There's so many varieties of religions. And that is what the, the human society has accepted. There are so many religions. And you say you are the essence of all religions. Sarva dharma. All religions. How could that be? And the most alarming part of the sentence is you are the most excellent manifestation of all the past incarnations. Absolutely fanatic. It doesn't go down the throat. Because his guru was against it. Sri Ramakrishna himself was against it. And this young boy says, you are the best. His guru would have thrown it out. And I don't need such a pranam mantra of yours. Now, as you say, there is some 
relationship between rationality and faith. Let me first clear it up so that let rationality take a hold on us now. Narendranath, by his own life, by his own conduct, the way he lived, moved, had his being with masters, and left a mass of ideas for us to understand. For all practical purposes, he could be called a teacher. Now, when we were students, we knew nothing about Euclid's geometry. By way of an example, where faith and belief and rationality live, coexist together as a complementary to each other, not a contradiction. We, with our limited sense, we always find contradictions. But the whole universe is in harmony with itself. And the purpose of religion is to find out that harmony and live your life according to that harmony. So I knew nothing about geometry. One day when I went to my geometry class, I found my teacher had scribbled something on the blackboard to cut off his time to explain. Two sides of a triangle is greater than the third side. That was a hypothesis. How could that be? But I didn't have the courage to say, no, it's not possible. I gave my teacher a little time and a chance to prove himself right or wrong. I held patience. I held my patience, let him have his chance. This faith and belief on your teacher to give you a little time to explain himself and you hold your opinion, that is faith and belief for you. You are rationally not convinced, but you allow your teacher a little time to guide you by your nose ring as it were. A wild buffalo has been guided by a little boy. Why? He has a finger in that nose ring. So what does your teacher do? He says, he looks, dears, these are the two triangles. I'm going to prove to you any two sides joined together is greater than the third side. And he starts, this is this, this is this, this is this. He deduces. And you with your popped up eyes, you listen. Ultimately, you do not know he has come to the last stage. Therefore, two sides of a triangle is greater than the third. QED, no more questions. You were not rationally convinced. You were convinced at the end. You gave, gave your teacher that amount of time by holding your patience, holding on to it. Let the poor man explain to me. Then only I'll give a nod of assent. And ultimately you had to give a nod of assent. That time lag, that time frame is known as faith 
in your teacher, belief in your teacher. So don't make all fuss about rationality and faith. Try to understand how do you harmonize everything rationally. Now we are in a position what Swami Vivekananda says, Narendra says, on the face of it, does not agree. It contradicts the traditional values of concept of religion. It contradicts the very idea what, with which he is praising his master. His master never believed in it. Excellence. The most excellent manifestation of the divine. Now, let us give Narendranath a little chance. Let us listen to him, how he looks at it and why he was convinced enough. Excuse me if I word, use these words. He was held by his neck to write so. By whom? By his matchless master. He never did anything by his ego. He was always prompted by that force of his master. And that force was so concrete, dear, it may appear to be a fairy tale. Few days before he cast off his body, he declared, he announced, look, I'm not going to live any longer. The hand that was holding my wrist and made me do whatever I have done up till now, I feel that hand has disappeared. I will not live for long. So, dears, don't say it is Narendra's statement. Narendra was made use of to write this trilogy. And now let us get into the essence of the matter. Dharma is something which is eternal. So it cannot be established. Let us see. With the onset of modern science, what held our thinking, whatever is true, whatever is real, is demonstrable. Multi-billion dollar laboratories are required to prove the mysteries of nature to be true. Those which were mysteries, mysterious, has been made blatantly understandable, rationally. So the main theme is seeing is believing. Or widen your scope, your five sense organs. Your five sense organs constantly interact with the world. And the impression carried back, transformed by your brains, into ideas, and you say, I believe, I believe. I have no other way but to believe, because it is being demonstrated, made possible to be perceived by my five sense organs. Good enough? You say God exists. Can you demonstrate? No, he cannot be demonstrated. However arguments you may prove, a subject cannot be objectified. All the 
I would say, abstruse, scholastic, and academic, pedantic discussions in the scriptures. An eternal subject, his eternal subject, he cannot be objectified. So, as because he does not fulfill the conditions of scientific approach, that whatever is real is demonstrable. God is not demonstrable, therefore God is not real. That's the end of it. But God is real. You are God. I am. I exist. I am aware I am. I can't use a laboratory to prove my amness. I am myself, my own laboratory. My conviction of my amness, I exist, I am, that conviction is so strong, even if that God comes and tells me, Sri Dharananda, you are not. I would politely say, sir, you are a busy man, keep busy, leave me alone. That's what I'll do. Why? My conviction is crystal clear, rock solid. I am. But I am not demonstrable. I can't make my amnes acceptable to your five sense organs. Can you? But you are aware of your amnes. It was left to Sri Ramakrishna to convert his psyche, to convert his physical frame into a laboratory without investing a penny by going through the varieties of methodologies known as austerity, known as tapasya, known as spiritual disciplines, he converted his Shuddha Sattvik Bhagavati Tanu. Shuddha Sattvik Bhagavati Tanu. Purest of the pure. Each and every cell of the body was purified. And his body, his physical frame, was a laboratory of demonstration of reality of the divine. And every fact and deed of Sri Ramakrishna's life is nothing else but rehabilitating, re, I would say rehabilitating, Reinstalling what? The lost values, the lost credibility, the lost stability of religion. Religion and God was being pushed into that category known as superstition. Sri Ramakrishna, by his own life, and I would request you to put your thinking hats on and oblige me, please, 
by going through his biography, which was written and collated from people who lived with him. Not a 300 years gap or a 200 years gap at that time, his biography, where you find every bit of his spiritual discipline, his tapasya, his austerity, being described to the maximum detail. And you will find how this young boy, unspoiled by the world, deeply interested in mysteries of nature, how this young boy grew into a young man and how like duck takes to water, he took to re-establish the lost credibility, the lost veracity of religion which leads to oneness with the divine. So now, a light is seen in the end of the tunnel. When Swami Vivekananda says, Narendra says, Oh dear Sri Ramakrishna, you are the establisher of religion, not as religion. You are the establisher of lost veracity, lost credibility, lost values of religion in human life by being the essence of religion yourself. Sarva Dharma Swarupa. What does it mean, Sarva Dharma Swarupa? You know, and you'll, I'll, I'll request you to find out for yourself. The scholars in the world, many of them, have delved in his life and written hundreds and hundreds of books on his excellence. It is Sarva Dharma Swarupa means the only recorded specimen in human history, in human history, where we find a person with unsatiated hunger, unquenchable thirst, took by storm as it were. The whole gamut of spiritual experiences spiritual disciplines that human society has experimented with for the last 4,000 years in one person. And he converted his body into a demonstration laboratory. Please, I will request you again. I won't go into the details for you to put your thinking hats on and to read the details. Who he was. And when we say, <coughs> pardon me, when he, we say that he is Suddha Sattik Bhagavati Tan, the literal is, straighter translation, purest of the pure, totally Sattvagun, and the body was divinized. Now we know from biological sciences that each and every cell of the body is different. Sri Ramakrishna 
with his austerity, his spiritual discipline, based on four human qualities, which is in all of us. Earnestness, <coughs> sincerity, determination, and wholehearted dedication. He purified every cell of his body. Every cell was divinized. That is why his body became a field of demonstration of all religions that human society has developed in the past, all austerities, spiritual disciplines, in a short span of 12 years. This gentleman known as Ramakrishna practiced it within himself and came out with this authoritative conclusion. The authority was backed up by his own experience. All roads lead to the same goal. And nobody is better, nobody is inferior, nobody is superior. Each one, according to their genius, can reach that absolute goal. That absolute goal is called by different names. Now we see a little sense in that so-called contradiction of Swamiji's Pranam Mantra. You, dear Lord Sri Ramakrishna, my all in all, my beloved of life, that's how he used to address himself, that you, dear, you have, by your lifestyle, by your spiritual achievement, and the way you lived, you have rehabilitated the lost credibility the lost value, the lost relevance of Shaswata Dharma, eternal Dharma. That is the call of God on human to come back to me who are heavily laden. That is it. All religion is nothing else but a call of God for the child to come back home. This is what Swami Vivekananda had in mind when he wrote these two first words of the shloka. By being the essence of all religions under the sun, how? By his own experience, not a flight of imagination. By his own experience, he proved to the world, demonstrated to the world, all religions lead to the same goal. A concept of a universal religion where every religion, more the merrier, there should be plenty more so that each and every individual has a choice. You go to the shopping mall, mall to choose, you have a choice of religion, whichever appeals to you. And we don't contest. We Vedantins, we say more the merrier. <laughs> to each according to their requirement, to each according to their genius. 
So these two words now stands explained why he was forced to utter such so-called contradictory statements. Sarva dharma sthapaka, sarva dharma swarupa. You became the essence of that experience. How? By his own spiritual austerity or disciplines. He slowly and slowly saturated himself with the conclusion of each and every religion. And that saturation transformed him. And he could proclaim with authority, I know each and every religion is true. It takes you to that goal. So, dharmasya sthapaka, sarva dharma swarupa stands explained. Now, dears, the last word. Avatara barishta. Barishta is good, better, best. Good, better, best, ordinary, so comparative, superlative. He uses the word superlative. Barishta. And it's max fanaticism. My guru is the best as I am holier than thou. My religion is the best of all and my guru is incomparable. <laughs> Did he fall into such a trap of being guided by euphoria about his own guru bhakti? Far from it, dear. He was never a victim of euphoria. That's why he was kicked around in his lifetime. It was said to be ungrateful to his master, Vishwasgat. Oh my, a traitor. Anyway, why did he say, why was he compelled to say, why was he held by his neck to say, Avatara Barishta? Why? Let us see. Let us see the avatars that history has recorded. First, the word avatara is avatarana, descent. There's a concept of movement. What is this concept of movement? The divine, out of sheer compassion for his children, going wayward. When he finds all types of help does not help the child, he, out of sheer compassion for the children, prefers, decides to be born a human and lead the flock back home. A very beautiful expression to lead his flock back home, to lead his children back to their maker in heaven so that they can enjoy eternal peace in paradise. Good enough. Now, this is a fact of history. Since the dawn of history, there's only one word I'd like to tell you that is just to remove the controversy there are schools of thought who says there was only one descent of the divine and there would be none more. 
Now, the cause of the descent is because he finds the children have gone wayward. And it compels him. So, the concept of a cause is there. The effect is to be born again as an incarnation. Cause and its effect is an infallible law of nature. Has that cause disappeared? The cause still remains. We are wavered. So, that concept, it will be only happening once in whole human history, somehow or other, does not stand the onslaught of rationality. Whereas, as and when, as and when, he feels that his children need a little help. It is for him to decide whether he will be born again or not. And if born again, what will he do when he is born? The Hindu concept believes in this concept, that it has to be over and over and over again, as and when it is required, and who decides? He decides. Nobody else decides. So, from that concept, we have a concept of series of avatars. Let us just recount now history, a little beyond history. Rama was supposed to be the first within history. When we were children, Rama was in the domain of legend and myth, thanks to the advance of archaeological sciences, his existence has been proved. So has been Krishna's existence proved. Abraham and Moses they are within the scope of history. So is Buddha, so is Christ, so is Shankara Ramanuja, so is Muhammad, so is Goranga Mahaprabhu, Sri Chaitanya Devi. Now, when we say Avatara Varishta, uh, where is it? Am I taking a longer time? May I have a few more minutes? Thank you. Please bear with me. <laughs> when we say varishta, let us first clarify that idea and things will be absolutely as clear as daylight to you. Listen, varishta is a superlative word. Good, better, best. Now know for certain Descent of the divine is the descent of divine. There's no quantifying it. 10% of the divine descends, 40% descends, 60%, 80%, 100%. So we know by comparison the quantum of divinity that descends is graded. But the quantum of divinity is not so. Divine either descends or doesn't descend. That means the avatarana or avataravad or the concept of incarnation of the divine 
the incarnation of the divine is sent person divine. Sent person divine. Now, what role does he have to play? Having been born a human, what role does he play? And from human point of view, why don't we try and find out the difference between the roles that they play? We are not questioning the quantum of divinity that has descended. That is just not possible. Don't think in your dreams. If there is a descent of the divine, incarnation of the divine, it's a hundred percent divine. If that is so, where does the word barishthata fits in, superlative fits in, the best fits in? It is the behavior pattern of that person in a human form. Is it clearly understood, dears? Make no mistake. As a divine incarnation, each and every incarnation of the divine is supreme in itself. We can, to satisfy our rationality and to find out what is my best choice? I go and compare it in balance of advantages and disadvantages, in balance of behavior pattern of the human life. There I say good, better, best. Not in the quantum of the divinity. This is the first explanation. Therefore, let us see and evaluate the behavior pattern of the past avatars. Though that behavior pattern was conditioned by the requirements of society. Even then, I today, in the year 2009, I have the freedom of going through all the information that I can gather, and thanks to the internet, <laughs> thanks to Google, you have everything on your fingertips. With that, I try and find out what was the behavior pattern like? How did he conduct himself? So let us see. Sri Ramachandra, the first in the Hindu mythology or history. He was born. The day he was born, prior to that, the whole world knew that Ravana is gone, grown up beyond his boots. The swollen headed, instead of one, he has ten heads. And he's protected by Shiva's blessings. He's indestructible and he's creating havoc 
in the culture of society. He has to be destroyed. Physical annihilation. That's the only way out. Who can do that but God? So God was born to save the society of tyranny of the demon known as Ravana. In that process we find two or three incidents which violates the concept of ethical behavior and moral behavior. One of them is slaying that person known as Bali. And there are two or three more. Let's not get into that. Somehow or other, sitting here today, my, I couldn't have, I shouldn't have done that. Somehow or other, doesn't, shouldn't have done that. And the worst thing today, as, as far as I'm concerned here, I'm very, very, very deeply involved in it. He brought his divine consort along, Sita Devi, Majanak. And what do we find? She played a second fiddle, a role of a second fiddle. Not only that, she martyred herself, sacrificed herself to enhance the standing of his much less husband. Marjada Purushottam Rama, a person who is known for equity, fair play, justice. That was Rama. Equity, fair play, justice. That's why he's worshipped today. Where would his equity, fair play, and justice been had Ma Janaki not sacrificed herself for him? Somehow or other, if you look at the totality of the incidents of his life, I'm afraid a modern man will not be able to swallow it totally. Next comes Krishna. The same theory applies. More so, we would not be able to understand why Srimati Radhika was forgotten, totally obliterated since he left Vrindavan and went to Mathura. A neglected soul in an epic. There are so many other things here. I will not come into picture. Overall conclusion is there are happenings in their lives which does not appeal to a modern man. At least it doesn't appeal to me. In, not that in totality, but several areas doesn't appeal to a modern man. We come to Christ, Buddha. Everywhere you will find either they are accompanied by their divine consort to set an example or to play a role, however undignified it may be. There are occasions when they have come alone without their divine consort. They have come with their divine consort to highlight what is the concept of sacrifices. Christ came without a divine consort and left such an indelible impact on human society that 
his concept of charity, his concept of compassion, his concept of giving your other cheek to be slapped upon when one has slapped on the other. It can never be forgotten as long as one single person lives here. Similarly, Buddha. So their impact for the welfare of human society is unique and unparalleled. But let us see their history, life history. We find areas where we do not understand and we say it's not acceptable. Rationality and faith. That is how they are contradictory. Dictated. But dear, when you outgrow your limited thinking, tune yourself with that level, you find no incongruity. That is your own spiritual growth. It is some, something else. What happens is, we on analysis find the most important aspect is how did they treat their divine consorts? They have always played a second role, a second fiddle. Not only that, they sacrifice themselves to enhance the standing of their matchless master. Now let us look at Sri Ramakrishna. The first unique aspect of his character is the only man in human history who has gone through all the disciplines of all the religions under the sun. And not only that, he proclaims to the human society all religions are true, provided it's practiced in the true spirit. Such a word of harmony, such a word of embracing the whole gamut of human spiritual civilization or culture in one sweep the world has never seen before. Secondly, converting his body into an experimental laboratory. I will only quote one incident now, dears. Please bear with me. Let me finish it to my satisfaction. However, it's an inflictment on you. You know, it so happened that Sri Ramakrishna had achieved that spiritual height of oneness with the divine. And he was always tuned to that idea. He's one with the divine. In many, many lives of the avatars, we have this description. Either they claim so, they say so, or once in a while they can foretell what is happening, fortune telling or future telling, depicting future. Now what happened, one day in the afternoon, it was a Sunday, he was walking on the bank of the river, Ganga, where he used to live in a garden house, temple garden house. 
he found some noise coming, quarrel happening. He saw, so two boatmen were quarreling with each other because both claimed that the client was his. In days of, I would say, poverty, that was the boatman's livelihood. They would crisscross, ferry across the Ganga and bring passengers, take back passengers. And hot words flew into a temper, and one of them hit the other a tight slap in the back. Sri Ramakrishna was about a hundred or hundred and fifty feet away. His only contact was visual contact. As soon as the other was hit, he yelled, he wept in anger, agony. Oof! And his nephew, his constant companion, who used to look after him, his shivat, he heard his uncle agonized anger, wail. What has happened to you? Why do you wail? He, in his own surprise, turned his back. And Rida sees, the nephew sees, dark black spot. He flew into a rage. Who has done this to you, uncle? Identify him. I'm going to wring his neck like a chicken. And Sri Ramakrishna, no, dear. See how the Divine Mother keeps me today for a set of examples. Those two persons were quarreling. You see the black mark behind that person? That black mark, as I was visually involved, has transferred into my back. The concept of oneness with the universe. As Christ identified himself with the sins of man, and paid for it. We have to interpret his actions. And here is a tangible, concrete demonstration of what happens if you identify yourself with the Spirit in the Holy Ghost. The body is a reflector of the mind's situation condition of the mind. This is what Sri Ramakrishna is. Barishtata, that is, not the quantum of divinity, but the behavior pattern in this world of ours, material world of ours. And finally, dears, I must prevent my being tempted quite some time. Finally, let us see how he established the concept which is exclusively Indian, but he wanted to make it universal. And the way he did it, he chose his own divine consort. 
Maa Sharda Devi, who sits next to Sri Ramakrishna, for heaven's sake, don't belittle her. Don't think she sits there on a borrowed shine. She sits there in her own right. She is the concept of motherhood of the divine. The whole world knows. The whole human society knows what is the concept of fatherhood of the divine. It was in the Vedic ages we find first the rishis looking up to the skies and saying, Oh dear, I understand you exist. You are the sublime. You are the supreme. You are the essence of the cosmos. But how do I conceive you? Utava Kumara, Utava Kumari. That's the outpouring in the agony of the hearts of the rishis. We are sure there is an absolute existence. And how do I conceive that absolute? Do I conceive you, dear Lord, as a father of this universe? Kumara is in masculine gender. Utava Kumari, or in the feminine gender. How do I think of you? And then they say, what distinction does it make? Absolute has no gender. Let us leave it to our imagination. If I so desire, my God is the mother of the universe. You can say, my God is the father of the universe. It's your choice. In India we find now, whenever they have chosen a father figure of the divine. Immediately they have chosen, by contrast, the mother figure of the divine. Shiva, Shivani, Brahma, Brahmani, Vishnu, Vaishnavi, Narayan, Narayani, one after the other. They are the same, but they are together all the time. Now, this concept of motherhood of the divine prevailed in Indian mythology prevailed in Indian philosophy, prevailed in Indian spiritual life, but left in the domain of mystic relationship between the devotee and the Lord. World had never seen what that motherhood of the divine could be if it is in flesh and blood. We have seen avatars as father figure of the divine. The mother figures came with them. The divine consorts, because of requirement of the society, sometimes it came, sometimes it did not. Makes no difference. How were they treated? I'm afraid, as second fiddle. How was the Holy Mother, Sri Sharda Devi, treated? The one incidence is good enough, the rest I leave to you to study. Sharda Devi was chosen by Sri Ramakrishna as his divine consort. He accepted her 
not only accepted her, he worshipped her ritualistically. And how did he worship her? As a mother figure of the universe, and what is the concept of motherhood in Indian tradition? The softest, the sweetest, the most gracious, ever forgiving, ever forbearing motherhood of the divine. Sri Ramakrishna worshipped his so-called wife, Sharda Devi, who was 17 years younger to him, made her sit on a raised pedestal where the divine is worshipped and worshipped this living entity, this woman, this lady, as the motherhood of the divine in these five distinct attributes. The world needed that. When you look at it from this point of view, dears, you will find that Sri Ramakrishna's living pattern, his behavior pattern as long as he lived, had such unique characters in it. You cannot shut your eyes to that. So, this concept of all religions leading to the same goal, which, is, which should be the basis of human harmony between religions, the concept of a universal religion, notwithstanding what is your faith and belief, but you can convert every moment of your life which is nothing else but a performance of his duty into an endless interaction with the divine, changing the concept of work into a concept worship. Without God, with God. These are the contributions that Sri Ramakrishna made to the modern society, where religion was being put to that corner of the area as superstition. That religion was rehabilitated in his splendor, in his glory. And rehabilitation of the lost concept of motherhood of the divine by bringing his divine consort along. Not only that, he left her behind for 34 long years to show to the world, to demonstrate to the world what is to be a divine mother of the universe, though contained in flesh and blood. So, dears, now I will take leave of you. You have had enough of me. <laughs> I take leave of you with this very humble request. Please kindly Expose yourself to these man-making, character-building ideas which will lead you to manifest the divinity which is within us. The word avatara, 
if taken from general point of view, we are all the descendants of the divine. We are the divine. Only we have forgotten our true identity. Such discussions, such interactions, such thought processes will help us to manifest that divinity which is hidden already within us. And the purpose of all this talk is to help us to manifest that divinity which is already within us. Thank you, dears. Thank you ever, ever, ever so much for bearing with me for so long. May the divine trinity bless us so that we may lead that goal of eternal peace, eternal tranquility, joy and ecstasy. That is what life is meant to enjoy.